The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. I remember some men started praying and others started crying. Um, part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up for five minutes. We'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com the Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. In this episode, we have a recording from the Teatatu Forum Meet that was held on the 25th of September 2016 at the Teatatu RSA in Auckland. The speaker is Bud Rose, a former Royal New Zealand Air Force flight engineer who served on the Dakota, the Freighter, the Hastings, the DC-6, the C-130 Hercules, and with Air New Zealand, the Electra, the DC-8 and the DC-10. Here's Bud. I'll start off uh, how I got into the RNZAF. I was born in Picton in 1926, so you can guess how old I am now. <laughs> we moved up to Blenheim from Picton and I went to Springland School and Marlborough College where we were introduced to rifles and in the cadet uh, scheme. So uh, by the time I left school I was very good 
with the SMLE 303 rifle. Uh, I had a paper run uh, out of Blenheim, 120 papers I went through Farnham, up the old Renwick Road to Jackson's Ford which happened to be a beam of Woodburn. By this time the war had started and they were, Woodburn was operating very well with Wildebeests and I forget the other name of the other biplane and Harvard's. So I would stand at the corner and, and watch the aeroplanes and then ride four miles back home down Middle Road. Somehow I joined, got involved with the Air Force uh, because I didn't know until about two years later when I tried to join the Army in Wellington, they said, go into room 24, they want to see you in there. I went there and I said, catch the boat down to Littleton next Wednesday, you're in the Air Force. <laughs> so uh, I was 18 in 1944 uh, and I finally got out to Harewood in early 1945 uh, because I was the tallest in the group, I was the marker and we would go down and watch the tiger moths fly when the wind wasn't too strong at, uh, at Harewood. Uh, sometimes when the nor'wester blew the tiger moths would go straight up and they would try and do a circuit and when they came back to land there would be people standing there to grab the wingtips. Uh, we did an assessment for me to do a pilot's course uh, and I was scrubbed because I was wiping everybody at that time of the war and I was sent up to Nelson to the TTS to do a mechanics course. Uh, the war finished and uh, we closed up and Nelson and moved up to Hobsonville. I've got a lot of stories about Nelson but I won't tell you those. We got to Hobsonville uh, where we worked on, oh sorry, at Nelson we had Corsair, Lodestar, Ventura, Hudson's, TBF, all sorts of aeroplanes which had to be transferred up to Hobsonville. And one day uh, an aircraft came in which happened to be a TBF and he did a slow roll over Nelson and landed. And uh, about eight pilots piled out of this aeroplane with their parachutes on. God knows where they'd been. There was one flying it, one in the navigator's position and the rest were down in the bomb bay. They flew our aeroplanes up to Hobsonville. We got up to Hobsonville uh, at the end of 45 and uh, I worked on the flying boat squadron down on the apron. It didn't have a number then. There was Catalinas up the waterway and we had three, four Mark III Sunderlands which were powered by Pegasus 18s, which are nine-cylinder engines. Each cylinder produced 150 horses, so they were a pretty uh, powerful motor. Uh, no oil outside the crankcase. The valves were lubricated by a felt pad. Every 120 hours, you would take the felt pads out, felt pads off, and soak them with high melting point grease and slapped them back on the rocker gear. That was the, the rocker valves on the top of the cylinders. NAC took over those aircraft in 1947 and we did CFAs on the aircraft before NAC took them over. 
and I was posted to Whanuapai. When we got there, the whole airfield was covered with DC-3s or C-47, as they were called then, and they were all khaki. They were coupled being flown by internal airways, and uh, they wanted them silver. So the Air Force must have bought thousands of gallons of paint remover because if you weren't working on an aircraft, we were all given a little square of perspex and overalls and climb on the wings and scrape all that khaki paint off and make them all silver. And slowly NAC, or internal airways as they were then, took over our DC-3s, or some of them. Uh, I don't know how many we kept, but I can remember on one uh, Battle of Britain day, we flew six down to Ohakia, uh early February and uh, landed six in formation on Ohakia. I happened to be in the right-hand side of the back three and we landed on the grass, of course, and couldn't stop and nearly ran up the one in front of us. A guy named Sam Mills was flying that one. Uh, Norm Gardner was... no, not Norm. Flight Lieutenant Gardner was flying the one I was in, and uh, so I grabbed the microphone and told Sam Mills to feed her the fat, otherwise we're going to chew his tail off. The on the uh, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. <laughs> I'll back up to 47. When I got under Fenuapai, there were lots of DC3s, and I worked in the hangar. They were short of flight engineers, and quite often they would take a mechanic who was interested in flying and let you fly as flight engineers. The flight engineer sat beside the pilot, he was in the co-pilot's seat. We had the electrics and the hydraulics immediately behind us so we could operate uh, the fuel system and the, uh, the systems on the aeroplane. And if you went on a trip, a long trip, you gave the pilot a break and you could fly the aeroplane, you were allowed to fly the aeroplane. Oh, you showed how to. Uh, my first logged trip was in 1948. I went to Singapore. Uh, one of us to hold away was the captain. Spiv White was the Maori fellow who was the radio operator. I don't remember the navigator's name. And I was the flight engineer. I was an LAC airman. So they gave me a thing that fitted over your epaulettes and uh, you're an instant sergeant. We were taking six pilots and six navigators up to Singapore to pick up the first uh, mosquitoes from the RAF. We went to Norfolk, Archerfield at uh, Brisbane, Cloncurry, Darwin, Surabaya in uh, which was in Dutch East Indies, and to Tanger. We had a couple of days in Tanger, and on the 1st of May 1948, when the emergency started in Singapore, we left and came back home via Surabaya, Darwin, Cloncurry, Archerfield, Norfolk, Fenuapai. And that took us. Uh, I forget how many days now, 12 or 14 days that was for that uh, trip. Then I went back in the hangar and uh, 
every now and then they would come and ask uh, anyone who was interested to go flying as flight engineer if there was a search on. I can remember we went and spent several days looking for a yacht out of Wellington called the Argo, which we never found. Uh, people going missing in the Hauraki Gulf, we'd go off and do three or four hours on a C-47 looking for them. And in 1949, I was posted up to Singapore with 41 Squadron A flight, and we took three C-47s up there, and the air crew operated parachute, uh, paratrooping, supply dropping, and any freight that wanted to be moved up and down Malaysia. Uh, we had one engine, one aircraft, 3549 was the number of it. Uh, had an engine failure at but Butterworth, and myself and a fellow named Sam Gemmell and a corporal were sent up there to change the engine, which we did in three days. And Johnny Trollope was the pilot, came up and flew the thing back and I did the air test with him, back to Changi. Towards the end of uh, 1949, our CO, who was uh, Ron Manners, was, uh, I was very friendly with him, he was in our rugby team, which we had up there, uh, and I said to him, I'd like to go to Hong Kong to get myself a nice jacket uh, because I was on my way home to do the flight engineers course and he said sure you can come I'm going up there in a couple of days so I engineered for him to Hong Kong uh, it was an important trip we went to Saigon uh, to Kai Tak in those days Kai Tak was a little strip in among the hills and the houses uh, so we picked up a whole lot of stuff from the British Embassy because in 1949, you might remember the amethyst problem they had up the Yangtze River. And uh, anyway, we flew all the stuff back to Changi. And about three weeks later, I came home to do my flight engineer's course. That took a year. So while I was in the hangar, there was a tiger moth needed a major overhaul, which I was told to do, which I did. And we had a whole lot of new pilots came in who had been trained during the war and they were retrained and they turned up as P4s, I think they were. They had no rank, no status, and they just lived in the main block at Phanua Pai. Uh, but they saw I was working on the Tiger Moth, so I got plenty of Tiger Moth flying out of those guys during the lunch hour, uh, not during working time. But, uh, I never ever logged any of that time, uh, which I'm very sorry for, but I probably had about 20 or 25 hours of tiger moth flying and uh, our man printed in the book. <laughs> uh, after I did the flight engineers course, uh, I wound up on the C-47s of course, and we had stopped the trips up to Japan, but we did a lot of shuttles through uh, New Zealand and uh, 1952 there was a big hurricane up in Fiji we went up and took some stuff up there for the Lasala Bay guys and when we got there the uh, 
a lot of the buildings were missing, there was just the, the floor left and uh, we stayed there a couple of days and then came back home and that's the sort of job we used to do with the C-47. Uh, the shuttle would go from Whanuapai to Rukahia to Ahakia to Paraparam to Woodburn to Wigram and then Wigram usually would stay there a day and do a navex with the, uh, the navigation school. Uh, we would go off and do a day cross-country for the new navigators and then we'd go down to Tyree, drop off all the freight that was due to go there and then pick up freight on the way back. Tyree, Wigram, Woodburn, Paraparam, Ohakia, Rukahia, back to Whanuapai. That got rid of the week. The C-47, I'll tell you about it, it had uh, four fuel tanks, 200 gallons in the main tanks and 202 I think in the auxiliary tanks. For the long range trips we had two tanks fitted behind the flight deck, 159 gallons in each one and they were underneath a uh, stretcher where the crew would have rest. We could have a sleep if you wanted one. And the, uh, if we did a double deck the pilot could have a rest and the engineer would uh, take over control of the aeroplane because we had a good autopilot, the Jack and Hines Series 3 I think it was called, very easy to fly with that and uh, we looked after the fuel system and the uh, electrics and everything else on the aeroplane. Can't think of anything else, anything exciting happened on the DC-3. <laughs> uh, I never lost an engine myself. Well, the only trouble we had uh, on one shuttle trip, I'll tell you, this was quite funny. We would, because of the freight we were carrying, they would load the fuel either in the main tanks or the auxiliary tanks, uh, which the mains were in the forward side of the wing and the uh, auxiliaries were aft. And uh, they would have a few gallons in the aft tank, the auxiliaries, but the main tanks were full. So we would fire up the engines on the auxiliaries and just before takeoff we'd select back onto the mains. So I was with two pilots, Stan Trounce, Pilot Officer Trounce and Pilot Officer Garrett. And we got down to Woodburn, dropped off our freight and picked up what they needed to send off down to Wigram, fired up the engines. Uh, I was sitting on a little jump seat behind the two drivers and uh, did our run-up, took off, got across the top of the Arbitrary Valley and dead silence. And I could see the fuel pressure drop right off and they were both sitting there looking at each other. What, what's gone wrong? <laughs> so it was dead silence and we were going down into the Arbitrary Valley and Mount Tapiwainuka's up there with snow all over it. and. Uh, I reached forward and I said, if we put onto the main tanks, we might fire up the engines, and they did. And we climbed off out of the Arbitrary Valley and carried on down to Wigram. And that was probably one of the most exciting things that ever happened to me on the DC-3. While I was on the... Uh, 1952, the squadron took over delivery of the first Hastings, and the Bristol freighter turned up. So... I did a course on the Hastings, I didn't want to do it, I wanted to stay on the C-47. 
But anyway, we did the Hastings and off to England, quick as a flash and back, and we started the long range 40 squad, uh, it was still 41 squadron, but it was called uh, 41 squadron long range squadron, I think, something like that. Chunky Watson was the CO from the west coast. I did about three trips to England and uh, 1953, I was on a flight. The autopilot used to give us a bit of trouble on the Hastings, so on my day off we carried two engineers so we could do the servicing on the aircraft and uh, on my day off I would give the pilots a bit of a break by flying the Hastings because the autopilot didn't work too well. We were, we had a co-pilot named Johnny Holton who was a Spitfire pilot. I don't know why the Air Force did this but they always gave us a co-pilot who wasn't qualified on the aeroplane for some reason. Uh, so the RAF did exactly the same and Johnny Holton would sit in the right hand seat and anyway one day I'm flying the thing, we had the CAS behind, we'd, we'd left Habanya heading back down to Moripur in Pakistan and uh, Johnny Holton was having a sleep at the base of the quadrant on his overalls and he got up to walk away and inadvertently pulled the flap lever. So we're hurtling along at 190 knots at 10,000 feet and the aeroplane all of a sudden pops up in the air so I thought, shit, what have I done wrong? So we levelled her out and got it all set a thousand feet high. Uh, Gordon Tosman was the captain, he was down the back talking to the CAS and he came up and he says, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, we've just climbed a thousand feet all of a sudden. And he said, oh, some bugger's selected a quarter flap. <laughs> so he flipped the lever and then guess what happened then? <coughs> we shot down a thousand feet very quickly. <coughs> that was another exciting thing that happened in my life on the Hastings. On one trip, we came into Moripur and there was a Bristol freighter lying in the monsoon drain off to our starboard and it was one of ours, 5901. I'd like to tell you this story because it's quite amusing. When we, it had happened about a week before we got there. The captain was a fellow named Randall. The navigator was Dave Ling. The navigator, uh, sorry, yeah, he was a nav. Sig was slave of Vincent. And the engineer was Jimmy Lockwood, a little Maori fellow. When they approached the airfield at Moripur, it's all pretty mud-coloured, the whole place anyway. They lined up on the wrong runway, and it was about 45 degrees off, and the wind coming from over here. And of course, the Bristol freighter drifted off into the monsoon drain, which is about 100 yards wide anyway. And uh, he made the wrong decision to try and get out of it and wipe the undercarriage off and skid it along sideways up the uh, monsoon drain. <coughs> the, uh, there was a big crate under the main wing section which stopped the fuselage from collapsing and uh, the port propeller chewed a big hole through the side of the fuselage and of course 
the aircraft just sat there, uh, broken in half, on the top of this box. Jimmy Lockwood, who was lying in the in the freight doors on the freighter watching the landing, he got out through the hole that the propeller had made on the port side. Dave Ling climbed down the ladder and he carried a bit more weight than uh, Jimmy and he tried to go out the same hole. We got stuck there because it was all jagged metal. Uh, Slaver Vincent, who was a signaller, had the hatch immediately above him. He tried to go out but was still plugged in with his helmet and radio gear. So he got uh, sort of pulled back down and the captain Randall climbed over the top of him and ran to the end of the wing and sat there and said, what have I done? <laughs> and Sloper ran out to the wing and jumped, but he thought it was about 15 feet to the ground, but it was only about four feet. <laughs> and he was exploring here. But I was talking to the flight sergeant, uh, the RAF flight sergeant at Moripore, and he said he had some trouble with Jimmy Lockwood because he didn't stop running. He got out through that hole on the side of the fuselage and ran. And Karachi was about four miles away, so he was probably heading off down to Karachi. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they, he chased him in a Land Rover and picked him up. And I got, I got all this story from Sid Vincent and the, uh, the, the RAF flight sergeant told me what, what was going on, because they couldn't see anything. He was covered in dust. and they, they, The aircraft was, uh, was pretty hidden in all this bloody dust. But that was that funny thing. A few months later, there were four sergeants sent off to salvage that freighter, and I happened to be one of them. The captain was Kingsley Tyumbers. He was about 21 years old. The navigator was Bill Moffat. He was about 21. Uh, and Sid Vincent, who was one of the, on the crash, he came and myself, and we were about 27, 28 years old at that stage. We did three trips from Moripore back to England with bits of freighter on board. We were away three months and did 270 hours. When we came back, oh, again, I was utilized, we did double legs. We'd go from Moripore to Sharjah to Habanja, which is just out of Baghdad. Uh, and on the second leg, I would climb up in, in the flight deck and Tyumbas would go down and have a sleep on the mattress down in the nose of the Bristol freighter. And then when we got near the top of descent, we'd call him up and he'd come up and, and do the landing. And that's how we operated the aircraft. <coughs> the whole, uh, on that whole episode, um, double legs, we would, uh, I would hop up and do a fly because we were checked out on the C-47 as a uh, relief pilot. So not only did we fly C-47s, we also flew Hastings and Bristol freighters until I did my last C-47 trip with a fellow named Larry Seagert, who was a squadron leader. and. I forget the number of the aircraft, but uh, we did a 30-minute test flight, and that was the last C-47 that we had at, uh, at 41 Squadron. They, they had 
uh, Dax down at Ohakia on 42 squadron, but we didn't have any more of the nearby. What else? Oh, Dick Bog. Uh, Sir Richard turned up at Fenerbahce on the Hastings in the early 1954. I uh, flew quite a lot with uh, Dick. He and I shared the same birthday date, so that made us very close friends. Except he was a squadron leader and I was a sergeant. Uh, in 1956, I was sent off to England to 24 Squadron, which was the Commonwealth Squadron. And when I arrived there, who was the CO but Dick Bolt? And he was about, he was there till the middle of 57. I'd only been over the, uh, we were based at Abingdon then, That's, it was a parachute training base in Berkshire. We moved into a house in Oxford, about nine miles away, and we did paratrooping, of course, plus other uh, jobs. Uh, one day we got called up and said, go up to Honington, and we all took our Hastings up to Honington and loaded up with troops, and went out through Luca and Malta to Cyprus, dumped the troops off, and came back to England about two weeks later a big briefing, go over to Lynham, pick up an aeroplane and uh, go out to Malta, which we did. And that was the start of the invasion of Egypt in 1956. Uh, we spent nine days, I think that war lasted, flying back and forth between Malta and Cyprus, taking over troops and bringing back Kazivaks. Uh, our last trip was down to Idris, which was in, uh, I think it was in Libya or Tunisia, somewhere down there, to pick up British families who were being harassed by the Arabs. So we went down there and the war finished the night we got into Idris. And then we flew back to England and that was the, the lot. Uh, I was then on VIP flight. But they were, and I was supposed to take the CA, the Chief of Imperial Defence Force, no, Chief, anyway, CIDS he was, to go back out to Egypt, and they said no colonial, colonial troops to go there. So I was sent out to Christmas Island on January the 1st, 1957, for three months, where the British were dropping their hydrogen bomb. So we, our job was to escort three C-47s out to Christmas Island across the Atlantic, across America to Hawaii and down to Christmas Island. Christmas Island is about two degrees north of the equator, due south of Honolulu. Our first leg was to Keflavik in Iceland. Snowflakes were that big and I had a had trouble with uh, spark plugs, so I had to go out in all this bloody snow and do a change a set of plugs on an engine, which I did. The skipper came out later on and we did the run up and it was cleared. We went off, the decks went to Greenland to Bluey West One was the name of the base they went to. And we went on to Goose Bay and Labrador and waited for them to turn up. We spent about a week at 
Goose Bay, went down to Montreal, to Ontario, across to Winnipeg. This was in January. Snow was away up there, and uh, we had trouble with uh, our oil uh, freezing, so we had fuel dilution. I've got to think of the right word. Fuel dilution fitted on our Hastings, and when we landed, we'd run the engine and hit the fuel dilation button until the oil pressure fell off, and then you'd stop because you knew the oil was all full of petrol. In the morning, when we took off, we had to fire up the engines, get them up to 100 degrees to get rid of all the petrol out of the oil, and away we would go. So it was quite a, an exercise. We got us. We went to Vancouver, Comox was the name of the base, then down to uh, the American base in San Francisco and waited for the DAX to turn, which they did in a couple of days. Uh, the last one took off as we were getting out of bed in the morning. We did our pre-flight and took off. It took us 12 hours to get across to Honolulu and the Hastings. We landed, we're in the mess having our first beer when we heard topoka, 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 and the old deck turned up. They'd taken them 16 hours. They had extra fuel and, uh, and oil on board. And the next day, we headed off down to Christmas Island. The CEO of the C-47 flight in the RAF was a guy named Hislop, who was an ex-RNZAF pilot and he commanded Christmas Island Airways. We did three months of flying up to Honolulu and bringing back loads of celery and whatever else. <laughs> Most of it was celery. Uh, did several trips down to um, Adelaide. I was trying to think of the name of the base. Where they, and we picked up stuff for the hydrogen bomb and took it back up to Christmas Island. Hmm? Woomera. No, no, it wasn't Woomera. Uh, it's a name like Elizabeth. Edinburgh. But it was just, just outside uh, Adelaide. Edinburgh. Hmm? Edinburgh. Edinburgh, uh, exactly. Yeah. Edinburgh Field was the name of it. I can remember the sergeant's mess there because they had a big picture of Marilyn Monroe naked <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of souvenir there. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think I'll finish there. I was lucky enough anyway when I came back from 24 Squadron. I'll tell you about 24 Squadron. <laughs> the RNZF said, you're off to 24 Squadron. You're leaving Wellington on the 8th of July. So I went down there with my wife and three children. We climbed on board the Southern Cross, which happened to be the second time round the world for a tourist ship. We climbed on board this and had into a big southerly storm to Fiji. I made it to the bar the second day out and there were three of us got in the bar at the tavern at the back of the ship and the three of us stayed very strong friends for the rest of the five weeks all the way to England. We went to Fiji, Tahiti on the 13th of July. What happens on the 13th of July but it's Bastille Day. 
from there we went to Panama through the canal uh, to Ecuador to refuel, but I forget the name of the port because it was cheap fuel. On to Trinidad where we did a bit of dancing and the old steel band was there uh, to Liverpool. Train down to London. I bought a London taxi for 35 pounds and <laughs> drove the family and all our baggage down to Abingdon, is where I was based. We stayed in the pub for two weeks. I came home three years later with five children. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly I had two palms. <laughs> <laughs> had a lot of a lot of VIP trips and uh, I did three, four, four Imperial Defence College tours, India, Pakistan, Africa, Italy, Yugoslavia and Germany and that'll do, or plus a lot of other, or Under Secretary of State for War, I think his name was Sloan, he was the son-in-law of the British Prime Minister and we spent Christmas and New Year in the Trucial Oman states out at uh, Bahrain, Shaiba, Charger, Mazira, Aden, Salala, all around that area while they were trying to stop the terrorism that was going on with the, with the Arabs. We were taking off from Bahrain to get the Under Secretary of State for War back into London by 7 o'clock tomorrow night and what happened, we just started to take off roll when we blew a tyre on the port wheel and here's the Hastings sitting on the end of the runway at Bahrain left wheel flat so the VIPs all got off and the skipper and the crew and left me there and I said I'll give you a call when I've got it fixed we didn't have any spare wheels but there was a spare Shackleton wheel there which had a tyre the same size as ours so I asked the flight sergeant, could we have the wheel? And he said, yep. And he gave me an Arab, and we got the wheel off. Or we had to jack the aeroplane up, of course. Got the aeroplane jacked up, took the tyre off the Shackleton wheel, took our tyre off our wheel and put it back on, and got it all back together and towed up to the hangar. I called up the skipper, and we left at 10 o'clock that night and went direct to Cyprus, refuelled and back into Heathrow non-stop with a single crew and I think that's why I got my mention in dispatches or it was not, that was a commendation, commendation from the CMC Transport Command for valuable services in the air. Thank you very much. I looked through my toolkit to show you some very important stuff. That's a Zeus spanner for undoing the Zeus fasteners around the engine, around the aircraft. This is a does all, which anybody on a C 47 needs. It has a Zeus fastener, just press a little button, you've got a screwdriver. And if you want to open the fuel tanks, it's got the old slot there for undoing the fuel tanks. So if you've got a C-47, I'll come and open your fuel tanks for you. <laughs>
That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.